Hello and welcome to this Constitution Unit seminar. My name is Alan Rennick. I'm the Deputy Director of the Constitution Unit and I'm your chair for today's seminar in which we launch, celebrate and discuss uh, a wonderful new book, uh, The Parliamentary Battle Over Brexit, written by my great colleagues Meg Russell and Lisa James. All of us here will, I suspect, remember forever a great deal about the Brexit process, not least the endless parliamentary wranglings over meaningful votes, Brady amendments, Bolt House compromises, Cooper Letwin bills, and all the rest. Um, but there's probably much that we've already forgotten. And certainly we have a great deal of thinking to do to reflect on what we can learn from this tumultuous period about the process of Brexit itself and what determines its outcome, and about how politics and core democratic institutions work and should work in the UK. The book does a tremendous job of doing all of that and to help us explore the issues today and particularly some of the more constitutional questions raised by the Brexit process, we're joined by a fantastic panel. Meg Russell is of course Professor of British and Comparative Politics and Director of the Constitution Unit here at UCL. Lisa James is a Constitution Unit Research Fellow and Meg and Lisa will start by outlining some of the key themes in the book. Then to respond to the book, we're joined by three people who know more about Brexit politics than almost anyone else, Lisa and Meg accepted, of course. Uh, so David Gawke was a senior minister in Theresa May's government, serving as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and then Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice. Joanna Cherry is SNP MP for Edinburgh Southwest and was the lead litigant in the Cherry case in the Supreme Court over the 2019 prorogation of Parliament. And Dr. Robert Saunders is reader in modern British history at Queen Mary University of London and author of Yes to Europe, the 1975 referendum and 70s Britain. After each speaker's opening remarks, we will have some discussion in the panel and then we'll open the floor to your questions. Questions are being gathered today by Tom Fleming. So if you do have a question that you'd like to put to the panel, please write it in the Q&A function that you see here on Zoom as opposed to the chat function. And Tom will select a broad range of questions and read them out. And if you'd like to ask a question anonymously, you can indicate that when you submit your question. And just also note that the whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded and will be posted on the Constitution Unit website, our YouTube channel, and our podcast after the event. So in just a moment, Meg and Lisa will start us off. But before we get there, just to get us all in the mood, we have a very short video to remind us of some of the key moments in Parliament's Brexit journey. So, Ed, over to the video. I'm very clear Brexit does mean Brexit. The sovereignty of Parliament and its restoration is at the very heart of why the UK is withdrawing from the European Union. Those of us on the Remain side might not like the result, but we have to accept it. The Prime Minister yesterday said she was calling a general election because Parliament was blocking Brexit. But three quarters of MPs and two thirds of the Lords voted for Article 15. Yep. So that's not true, is it? I don't say that this deal is perfect. It was never going to be. That's the nature of a negotiation. It's a wonder that any democratic politician could conceivably vote for this deal. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. Every day that passes without this issue being resolved means more uncertainty, more bitterness and more rancour. This horrendous debate, which is tearing the country apart, 
is doing great harm to our political institutions, and particularly Parliament. We have a divided cabinet. We have a divided Parliament. We have a divided country. All the existing rules of politics have now been broken. The prorogation is completely routine. The decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful, void, and of no effect. This Parliament is a dead Parliament. It should no longer sit. Many of us in this place subject to death threats and abuse every single day. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. I would respectfully say my right honourable friend is tiptoeing onto a dangerous path. He's pitting Brexit against Remain, Young against Old, Scotland against England and people against the Parliament. Gosh, lots of memories there. Um, Meg, shall we go straight on to you uh, to start telling us about the book? Thank you very much, Alan. And uh, thanks to everybody for attending this event and particularly to the other panelists for being with us to respond to the book. That video was just a little reminder to get you in the mood. Um, in case anybody had forgotten, the period following the 2016 Brexit referendum was an extraordinary one in our politics and particularly in Parliament, where many of the key battles played out. Our book charts events from the initial parliamentary pressures to hold a referendum through to the UK's eventual departure from the EU more than three and a half years later. In between, we saw two Supreme Court cases over Parliament's role, a minority government, huge parliamentary defeats of Theresa May's Brexit deal, House of Commons innovations such as the meaningful vote and indicative votes, the forcing out of a prime minister, the unprecedented prorogation, which became a non-prorogation, as Joanna said in that clip, and some quite shocking levels of acrimony about both Parliament and the courts. The book seeks to explain what happened and to provide a reliable document of record for what was a compl complicated and disputed time. It's important looking back that we properly understand these events and can reflect on them cool-headedly. In the time that remains, we'll just touch on some of the bigger constitutional points that we discuss in the conclusion to the book and discussed on the unit's blog this morning. In questions, we're happy to go into any of the other content of the book. So I'll start doing that and then hand to Lisa. Constitutionally, the real mischief began with the referendum. It was perfectly proper to have a referendum, but the design of it was deeply flawed. The House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, chaired by the Brexit-supporting Bernard Jenkin, criticised it as a bluff call referendum. David Cameron called it essentially to make a difficult issue go away. It was partly forced on him by backbench rebels, but even some of them, in the words of one that we interviewed, saw it as a tool to, quote, lance the boil of Euroscepticism inside the Conservative Party. Despite the enormity of the question, the principle of leaving the EU was remarkably made subject to no set piece in debate in Parliament before the referendum. The referendum itself then set out no prospectus for what a leave vote would mean. Cameron forbade the civil service from preparing for it. Inside government, one cabinet member has recalled the immediate response to the result was, quote, complete disarray and disbelief. This put Parliament in a very difficult position. Notwithstanding Brexit supporters' original objective of restoring the sovereignty of Parliament, Parliament, with its clear Remain majority prior to the referendum, quickly became the subject of suspicion after the result. Theresa May used the first Miller case as a dividing line, accusing its proponents of seeking to subvert democracy. 
High Court judges who initially ruled that Parliament should have a say in triggering Article 50 were denounced in headlines as enemies of the people. Brexit and the way it was handled had begun setting people not only against each other, but against their own democratic institutions. Theresa May's closed political style, coupled with her tiny Commons majority of 16, which after the 2017 general election disappeared altogether, was inclined to shut Parliament out as much as possible. There was also strikingly no attempt to engage the public in what Brexit should mean. May's closed attitude led Parliament to fight back and acrimony grew. The initial pressure for the parliamentary meaningful vote on the Brexit deal came from opposition politicians and centrist conservatives who were afraid that May might be captured by her hardliners. In the end, ironically, those hardliners used it repeatedly to defeat her Brexit deal. That leads to some awkward questions for those of us inclined to think that Parliament should have a say and that crucial matters should not be left to prerogative powers. What might have happened without the requirement for a meaningful vote is one of many what-ifs we explore in the book. Similarly, when parliamentarians took control of the Commons agenda to hold the so-called indicative votes in order to secure support for an alternative Brexit outcome, they failed to find a majority for anything. There were big questions at the time about whether these votes could have been handled better, and they undoubtedly led to further negative headlines about Parliament. But the fact that a majority of MPs even felt the need to pursue such routes was a sign of just what a difficult position we were already in. Although Brexit supporters more or less boycotted the indicative votes, one described them very frankly to us in interview, as again I quote, almost like Parliament bothering to have the debate that it probably should have had before the referendum was legislated for, but doing it after the people had voted. At that point, I think I'll stop and hand to Lisa and she can pick up the rest of the story. Thank you. Thanks, Meg. So this situation threw up some fundamental questions about the proper role of Parliament and some broader questions as well about the functioning of our constitution. Um, and in my five minutes, I'm going to touch very briefly on four of those questions about parliamentary sovereignty, about the workings of our political parties, uh, about scrutiny and about political culture. Parliamentary sovereignty is often said to be the central tenet of our constitution, and it's a term that was often invoked in the Brexit debates. Uh, but as we explore in the book, it was used by very different people to mean very different things. In general, people calling for Brexit cited parliamentary sovereignty as one important reason to leave the EU. But when you look more closely, these calls often use the term parliamentary sovereignty as a synonym for national sovereignty. At domestic level, it wasn't necessarily Parliament that they wanted to empower. And then the referendum provided a further complication. The government frequently laid claim to the referendum mandate, effectively arguing that popular sovereignty trumped parliamentary sovereignty. But this argument falls down, again, because of the lack of clarity in the referendum. They were trying to use a popular mandate for the principle of Brexit to override Parliament on the question of what form Brexit should take. And it's very striking that Theresa May and Boris Johnson both laid claim to the same popular mandate, but claimed it in support of quite different versions of Brexit. And more generally, you know, we continue to see parliamentary sovereignty being cited as an argument often against the courts, even when it's executive rather than parliamentary power that's being checked. So there's quite a muddle around this term, which, which we've tried to unpick a little. 
Uh, and the episode is also revealing about the role that political parties play. This period saw some really high profile arguments between government and parliament. Um, but as we emphasize, neither of those things are monolithic bodies. And an awful lot of the argument that went on was actually taking place inside the Conservative Party. And that division in the governing party made it very difficult for parliament to function effectively. Episodes like the indicative votes appear very much like a parliamentary failure, but it was always in reality going to be difficult for cross-party groups of backbenchers to find a majority where the government itself was unable to do so. So these events demonstrate how far cohesive political parties are the building blocks of parliament and how hard it is for the institution to function in their absence. And in addition to the conservative uh, splits, the Labour Party also faced difficulties in this period, uh, not least because it had a leader that it didn't support. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, elected by grassroots members against the wishes of the parliamentary Labour Party, and then reimposed on the PLP by members when they tried to oust him. And his presence, as we go into, uh, made it difficult for Theresa May realistically to contemplate cross-party deals and also became very problematic uh, when MPs looked at the possibility of forming a cross-party government in opposition to Boris Johnson in 2019. So those leadership elections and those methods of choosing the leader are, are arguably one thing uh, that Brexit suggests might need to change. And then another problem arose from the rules of the House of Commons itself. Uh, so the government's standard control of the House of Commons agenda becomes problematic in the context of minority government. Uh, and that we see a situation where a government which couldn't itself find a majority was able to withhold parliamentary time, which others might have wanted to use uh, in order to try and form alternative majorities. So uh, Theresa May delayed and postponed debates. Her government withheld opposition days, and it was that withholding that ultimately led to backbenchers uh, doing what's often been termed seizing the agenda. A more rational sharing of agenda time, as we often find in other parliaments, might have eased some of those pressures. A lasting and quite troubling legacy of Brexit uh, is government's reluctance to submit itself and its legislation to proper scrutiny. Uh, so the time limits imposed by the Article 50 process allowed the government to claim that urgency justified limiting scrutiny. The COVID pandemic obviously then uh, came along and did very much the same. The danger really is that this becomes a new norm. The retained EU law revocation and reform bill, which is currently before Parliament, seeks to give the government sweeping powers to rewrite the statute book with only very limited parliamentary oversight. The illegal immigration bill is getting just three days debate in the Commons. If we're really interested in good governance, then these habits need to change. And finally, the book asks whether Brexit suggests that we need bigger constitutional change. There was much talk under Johnson's premiership of the breakdown of the so-called good chaps theory um, and suggestions that the UK is over-reliant on convention, that you know, it's time we had a codified constitution. But when we look internationally, we see many other stable democracies with codified constitutions, which have come under pressures from uh, what are often termed strongman leaders, you know, leaders who don't want to follow the rules and don't want to be limited by them. So actually, to a significant extent, these problems are cultural rather than institutional. And that's why we end the book by reflecting on the influence of populism, uh, which is closely linked to polarization and also tends to lead to attacks on democratic institutions. Constitutional democracy depends on checks and balances. 
politics depends on people accepting compromise and recognizing that not everybody can get what they want. And those really basic ideas came under huge pressure over Brexit. So although we do identify uh, some respects in which our institutions need to be fixed, we also conclude the book by uh, finding that we urgently need to address our political culture. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Meg and Lisa. Lots and lots to get our teeth into there. I will hand straight over to David Gork, who's going to offer a first set of reflections. David. No, thank you very much, uh, Alan, and um, great pleasure to be with you. And I do think that this project and this book is hugely valuable because it was an extraordinary time uh, in our political and parliamentary history. And, and having understanding of this is going to be immensely important for future historians. And, and, and I think all of us who were involved in this process were conscious that we were living uh, through history, whether that was in any way uh, compensation or consolation uh, remains to be seen. But, but we were conscious that this was uh, a very, very big and important moment uh, in, in our history. I, I think any... Um, reflection on this does have to start with the observation that both uh, Meg and Lisa have made about you know, when you have a referendum of this sort uh, and it reached the conclusion that it reached, um, the country, parliament, government was faced with this huge challenge of, of working out what exactly leave means because the simple question on the ballot paper in June 2016 didn't really give us an answer. and. What became pretty clear fairly early on is that, rightly or wrongly, there was a sense that the moral authority to answer that question lay with those who were on the winning side. Uh, and those of us who had campaigned and voted for Remain were put at a disadvantage uh, because of that, because we couldn't say, well, we, you know, we represent the, the, the majority. And that, I think, immediately put a lot of politicians on the back foot. I, I do have to make this point that I do think that, that quite a lot of the Leave uh, supporters, demonstrators over a long period of time, uh, a lack of understanding of the realities of the situation, some of the trade-offs that existed. The most obvious example being the issue of the Northern Ireland border and how hard uh, it was to resolve this, that there wasn't a, an easy solution, that the Northern Ireland trilemma I'm not gonna go through, all the details, I suspect everybody watching this is, is very familiar with it. Um, uh, but that I think was sort of symptomatic of the, of, of, of the reluctance and inability to face up to the sort of real hard choices uh, that, are, um, uh, that were available to us. Um, I, I think there's sort of two particular periods of time that I want to, 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 to focus on. First of all, as a member of the cabinet, through 2018 and 2019, when uh, Theresa May was trying to get her deal through, and it was consistently uh, and indeed uh, generally emphatically rejected by Parliament. And what we saw over this period of time uh, was uh, an ability for Parliament to show what it was against, but not to show what it was for, because this wasn't a binary option. This wasn't um, you know, a, a, an act of Parliament. Do you want it to proceed or do you not? Um, this, this was much, much more complicated and, and, and Parliament's procedures and systems were not well su su suited to address that. The conversation we had around the cabinet table on multiple occasions at great length 
was ways in which we could try to distill this into a choice of two. Uh, and this is where Parliament, I'm oh, sorry, where the cabinet was split. There were some who argued the choice had to be between the deal and uh, leaving the EU without a deal. There are others of us who said the choice has to be between the deal and no Brexit at all. Uh, and uh, you know, partly that reflected uh, what uh, our preferences were, what we thought was the kind of you know the, the our, our second choice. All of the cabinet did want the deal, but but you know, with with sort of differing uh, views as to what was the next best option. Those who argued for deal versus no deal believed that this was going to provide greater leverage with the EU. I think that was always a failure to understand where the EU was coming from. The UK's ultimate bargaining position, and indeed failed to understand the complexities of the Northern Ireland issue and, and, and why the EU was not essentially going to make concessions that involved putting a border up uh, on the island of Ireland. Um, there was also a political factor here that was really very strong, uh, which was about the Conservative Party could not survive failing to deliver Brexit. Uh, and that factor was, was also uh, very strong. Uh, for those of us who were favouring the other approach, we simply believe that that was the, the only two responsible choices that we could essentially put to Parliament and that a no-deal Brexit would have been so disastrous um, that we would never have been uh, forgiven for delivering that. And then just sort of one last sort of comment, I was also involved in the parliamentary processes in uh, September and October uh, 2019, the Ben Burt Act. Um, I do believe that looking back on this, um, it, it, everything that's happened subsequently has confirmed my view that had Parliament not made that extraordinary intervention involving considerable um, uh, innovation in the way Parliament was used, uh, I believe that uh, Boris Johnson would have taken us out of the European Union without a deal. Uh, I also believe that uh, it's quite possible that had uh, Parliament uh, not sort of essentially reapplied the Ben Burt Act in October of, 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 of 2019 after Johnson had got his deal, there is every chance that he would have tried to reopen the deal, uh, that he might have engaged in some sort of mischief, which meant we could have still left without a, a, a deal on the 31st of October, um, that Parliament needed to intervene again because we could not be confident that Boris Johnson uh, would have acted in good faith. And the fact that he has subsequently consistently sought to overturn the deal that he entered into uh, demonstrates that, 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 that this was a tactical maneuver in signing up to the deal uh, that was signed in my view in bad faith uh, with the view of subsequently revoking it. And that parliamentary intervention for those of us who are essentially on the losing side, um, uh, that uh, nonetheless, we did make a difference we did manage to do something that prevented what could have been even more harmful uh, than the outcome uh, that we have now had. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, David. Lots for us to follow up on uh, in the discussion. Uh, let's go straight to Joanne Sherry. Thank you, Alan. And it's a pleasure to follow David. Um, he's one of the many people who are missed from Parliament, I think. Um, and I think we saw a few of those faces in the film you showed at, at the beginning. And I agree with David that the cross-party action taken in September, October 2019 did make a difference in preventing 
uh, a no deal Brexit. So something good did come out of it. Um, thanks for asking me to speak today. I've really enjoyed reading the book. It's good to be reminded of some of the detail of the ins and outs. It's amazing how with the passage of time and all the crazy things that have happened since, not least in Scottish politics, that one forgets exactly what happened. Um, I guess my, my big takeaway from the book was being reminded that the Brexit process became so drawn out, not because we had a parliament full of Remainers who were acting in bad faith, but because of Boris Johnson and the Eurosceptics. And I think that's a really important takeaway from the book and something that's really good that we've been reminded. Another thing um, that's come to mind, particularly this week, of the Privileges Committee, is a takeaway about the, the lasting impact on our politics, which I think has become somewhat debased over the last few years particularly as we've had a Prime Minister who, to echo what David said, is not a good faith actor and uh, is very keen to avoid scrutiny, particularly parliamentary scrutiny. Another two uh, lasting impacts of the process described in the book I'd like to mention are, first of all, the impact on the devolved nations and devolution itself and relations between the devolved governments and Westminster. Clearly, they've been hugely impacted by this process. The Sewell Convention that the UK Parliament will not normally legislate in areas that affect devolved competence without the consent of the Scottish Parliament has been, and indeed the Welsh Senate, has been more um, honoured in the breach than anything else. And, we know from the Supreme Court, which I always think is not terribly interested in the intricacies of devolution. We know from the Supreme Court that that constitutional convention is unenforceable. The internal market bill, albeit there has perhaps been a bit of a change from what was first envisaged, really did drive a coach and horses through what Donald Dewar envisaged for devolution, his great scheme that everything not uh, reserved would be uh, devolved. And I think what it, it has shown is that unlike what the Scots were told, we were told we had the most powerful devolved parliament in the world. I think the Brexit has shown that very much not to be the case. And the constitutional question is therefore not going away. A, a second big takeaway for me is the impact of the whole process on the rule of law in the United Kingdom and a, a cavalier attitude towards the rule of law and a disrespect, not only for our international obligations, which we saw with the Internal Market Bill, and we've seen going forward with the Bill of Rights and the Illegal Migration Bill, but also a, a lack of respect for our internal politics. We learned that it wasn't just foreign judges that certain newspapers and populist politicians took exception to, but they also took exception to Scottish and English and British judges when they made decisions that they didn't like and I think uh, that has led to a number of knock-on effects and attempts to try and circumscribe the power of the courts with the judicial review bill and, and the like. But, but a, thir a third big takeaway for me, for me arises from the discussion in the book about political parties and um, parliament. And I was struck by how largely absent Scotland and the SNP are from the account of events. Now, 
don't worry, you're not about to get an SNP diatribe about metropolitan bias. Uh, I know Meg well, and I don't know Lisa, but uh, I know the, you know the you the the Constitution Unit at UCL takes a very close and well-informed interest in Scottish politics. Indeed, the book acknowledges changes solution made on concepts of parliamentary sovereignty that Lisa was talking about. Um, and also some there's some discussion in the book of the tensions that grew up between Westminster and the devolved institutions. But I think the book reflects an uncomfortable truth for uh, the SNP, which is um, that while some individual politicians, including myself and, and Andy Whiteman from the Scottish Greens, made significant interventions in the Brexit process, neither the SNP nor the Scottish Government got any concessions out of the whole damn mess, if you'll forgive my language, despite being the third party in a hung parliament. And I think that's quite an interesting question that hasn't really been properly examined. Early on in the process, the Scottish Government produced an excellent paper called Scotland's Place in Europe, which uh, proposed a variety of compromises uh, as to what Brexit might look like, both a special deal for Scotland and also compromise positions for the United Kingdom as a whole. That document was pretty much ignored by the British government, although I know it's quite well received and read by Michelle Barney, he commented favourably upon it. But other than that great document and the negotiations about technicalities surrounding the internal market, there was really um, very little that the SNP did other than repeatedly stating that Scotland wouldn't be taken out of the EU against our will, which was what in fact actually eventually happened. And I don't think the SNP got very much out of those years of parliamentary wrangling. And I think when you're the third party in a hung parliament, as we were after the 2017 election, the 2017 election was a bit of a shock, not just for Theresa May, also for the SNP, because we went from our great victory of having 56 MPs in 2015 down to having 35 but we still had 35 MPs in a hung parliament and we were the third party in uh, a hung parliament. And uh, I don't think we capitalised on that. And one of the things that I learned as a relatively junior parliamentarian when the whole Brexit process kicked off, because I only got elected in 2015, one of the things I learned was about the benefits of tactical and strategical strategic planning and also the benefits of working cross-party and you, you talk in the book about the group trains and buses which was a cross-party collection of mainly backbench Tory and Labour MPs and myself and Dr Philippa Whitford and um, Liz from Plaid Cymru and, and Caroline Lucas and a lot of the parliamentary initiatives um, came out of that group I know there was the group of the of the grandees as well which in a sense were on a level above us and I think that my party uh, needs to learn from our failure to have the same um, detailed strategic approach to what was going on, because um, there's very well-founded rumours in Scotland that at one stage, Theresa May, uh, on the advice of her civil servants, was willing to make a number of concessions to the Scottish Government and the SNP to try and get the cooperation of SNP MPs for a softer Brexit. But because of the very confrontational attitude that was taken, uh, she decided not to bother with that. And uh, I think in future, we might face a hung parliament next year, who knows. 
the SNP will need to think very carefully about how we use our position as a third party uh, to get the best possible deal having regard to our electoral mandate. So that's a big takeaway for me. I forgot to put my timer on, so I think I might have gone over time, but I just wanted to say something, two things very quickly. We might uh, talk about these in the discussion. Quite often the SNP gets pilloried for not supporting Ken Clark's uh, customs union option in the indicative votes. There's no question of us ever supporting that. Single market was absolutely central to our strategy because of the importance of having free movement of people, and particularly in a country with such aging demographics as ours, but also goods and services. So really that was a non-starter for us. And secondly, I think it might be quite interesting to discuss a bit more about uh, the People's Vote campaign. Uh, that threw up some conundrums for the SNP, but we did eventually support it. And I'd be happy to talk about that if it comes up uh, during the discussion session. Thanks. Joanna, lots of really uh, interesting insights there. Your connection was a little bit jittery, but we could hear if, if we concentrated hard, so uh, well worth doing so. Thank you. Robert Saunders, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to be able to help celebrate this wonderful book, which I enormously enjoyed reading, and which I really would recommend to everybody. I am a political historian, so I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about great parliamentary crises, whether that's the Great Reform Act of 1832, or the Ulster Crisis of 1914, or the crisis of government in the 1970s. And Parliament has always been the place where big, divisive political questions are fought out. Parliaments are inherently about argument and opposition. What I think is unusual about the Brexit crisis is the claim either that Parliament failed, or that it actively obstructed the will of the people, that it actually became a barrier to decision-making that needed either to be smashed or to be swept aside. So I thought I would just pull a few thoughts out of the book about why the Brexit crisis was so difficult for Parliament and what made it so unusual. So firstly, after 2016, government was trying to do something that was almost unprecedented. It was trying to carry a massive and hugely controversial policy change through a parliament in which it had no majority. And that almost never happens. Usually, governments either have a majority or they accept the constraints of minority governments, so they don't table legislation that they can't pass. That, of course, was not an option in 2016. Ministers had to try to do this very difficult and complex thing in a parliament they couldn't control. And very few people in parliament had any experience of that situation. A second problem, the referendum gave parliament an instruction. So parliament had, Britain had to leave the EU. And until quite late in 2019, most MPs accepted that. What the referendum didn't do was that it gave no instruction on the form that Brexit should take. That opened up a whole forest of questions with really seismic implications, because what Brexit meant in practice would depend almost entirely on decisions about its form for immigration, Northern Ireland, the economy, people's job prospects and much more. So the stakes here were enormously high. The problem was that every individual version of Brexit was less popular than Brexit in the abstract. Boris Johnson would not support Theresa May's deal. 
because he thought its terms were not acceptable. Others would not support no deal for the same reason. So there was a majority in Parliament to leave, but there was no majority for any of the doors through which Britain might in practice depart. That then connected with a third problem, which is this. Almost uniquely, Parliament was debating something in which the default option was not the status quo. As soon as Article 50 was triggered, the UK was on a conveyor belt towards Brexit. And at the end of that period, Britain would leave with or without a deal by automatic force of law, unless Parliament actively voted for something else. So if a government wanted a no deal, Parliament couldn't just vote that down. It had to take active steps to prevent it. And a lot of parliamentary activism, all of those backbench resolutions seizing control of the timetable or imposing extensions, they came out of that really unusual dynamic. Then there's a fourth problem. Parliamentary government depends on one key principle. Governments must command the confidence of the House of Commons. In 2019 in particular, that manifestly did not apply. MPs had so little confidence in Boris Johnson that they were legislating to bind his hands. But as we've heard, they had even less confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, a man whose own MPs had tried to remove him. Neither party could change its leader because that power had been given to party members. So MPs had no confidence in the existing government, but they couldn't replace it with one in which they did. And many were reluctant to risk a general election for fear they might crash out with no deal during the campaign. And if you put that together, that dislocated the core principle that makes parliamentary government work. And that really brings us back to where we started. When we say things like parliament blocked Brexit, parliament is not an agent. It doesn't have a mind or a collective personality. It is an arena or a place where people disagree. What happened in the Brexit process is that disagreement was widely treated as being democratically illegitimate, including by some like Boris Johnson, who had used their parliamentary position to vote down other forms of Brexit. And that assault on the legitimacy of Parliament, I think, was the single most dangerous legacy of these years. And the willingness of this book to challenge that narrative, I think, makes it a really important contribution to our democratic debate not simply to the history of Brexit. I mean, that's my five minutes, so I'll stop there. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much, Robert. The first thing I will do is ask Meg and Lisa whether they would like to respond in any way to those uh, thoughts that we've heard from David, Joanna and Robert. Just while they're gathering their thoughts, can I remind you that if you would like to put any questions to the panel, uh, we'd very much like to hear from you. We've already had some great questions in the Q&A, so now's the time to get those questions in. Put them in the Q&A, and Tom is monitoring them. Um, Meg and Lisa, who'd like to start? Uh, thank you, Alan. <laughs> this, is, this is dangerous because that was such a rich set of comments. Uh, there's so much that we could say and so much to respond to, and you've sort of reminded me of all sorts of other things that are in the book that we didn't... Um, that we that we didn't focus on in the opening remarks. Um, maybe I'll try and um, well just pick one thing from each contribution if I can if I can manage that. Um, David talked about how the how the cabinet was split 
on deal versus no deal or deal versus no Brexit, which of course was also one of the problems when contemplating a second referendum, uh, which we do touch on a bit in the book that, and we, the Constitution Unit wrote a, wrote a paper about what the options would be for a second referendum. And there wasn't even any agreement on what the question should, should be. But Theresa May fell into the trap, I suppose, perhaps of representing the whole cabinet by threatening both at the same time that if you didn't vote for her deal, you were likely to get no Brexit or that you were likely to get no deal, which meant that she never really decided which side she was on, which meant that both sides thought that there was something useful to be achieved by voting down her deal, which seemed like quite a serious tactical, tactical error. Um, I, well, on David, it, it, it's, not, it's not fair to let him sit here without acknowledging that he was one of the 21 people that um, Boris Johnson, quite outrageously, in my view, threw out of the Conservative Party uh, for rebelling a single time once after Johnson had himself rebelled twice on Theresa May's deal. 17 of those 21 people had voted for Theresa May's deal. Uh, Boris Johnson hadn't, but they were the ones that got ejected from the Conservative Party, which uh, is another problematic aspect of, uh, of parties in this in this period, I think. Um, Joanna, I'm sorry there isn't more SNP, um, <laughs> but you were there as part of, as you say, the, the mysterious trains and buses amongst other things. And clearly you yourself feature significantly in the book for the part that you played um, in the court cases. On the point about the customs union amendment, um, that's an opportunity to say that we don't focus really on that in, in the book. We say a, a rather different thing, which is that at the time, there was quite a lot of blame going around between people on the sort of anti-no deal or what many people call remain side of the argument, that that side of the argument was not sufficiently cohesive. You didn't vote for something, the Liberal Democrats didn't vote for something else. The real problem we point out is that when it came to the indicative votes, there were only 30 something conservatives who voted for any of the compromise options notwithstanding that two of them were led by senior conservatives, Ken Clark and Nick Bowles. So the real, the real fault, I think, lay with conservative members and their refusal to compromise. And we go into why that, why that was the case. And then um, Robert just provides such a rich set of comments. Um, perhaps just to focus on the, the, the really important point I think you make that um, in all of these previous crises, the blame was not turned on Parliament itself. It was accepted that Parliament was an arena. And I think we do talk quite a lot in the book about that really huge problem of Parliament being given the blame. And we talk about who gave Parliament the blame. And unfortunately, it started with Theresa May. Um, you know, the, those words that she used about the people block backing the, the first Miller case, etc. We criticize her quite a lot for her articulation of Parliament as the guilty party and her failure to articulate exactly who it was among that diverse set of people that were causing the problem. And in particular, never to point at her own backbenchers and say, these people are not supporting me. And she had an opportunity, I think, to get the public and, and even the right-wing media on her side if she had done that more. Um, but she created this sense of a monolithic Parliament that was the enemy. And Boris Johnson picked that up and um, created a great deal more havoc with it in her wake. Uh, Meg's picked off lots of the juicy bits there, Lisa. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add? <laughs> um, I'll chime in very, very quickly, um, because I think one really interesting question that, that runs through um, the, the comments from all three of our, of our fellow panellists um, is this question of how we deal with disagreement. Um, I 
I think yeah, it, was, it was absolutely right to raise that you know, the first uh, the first rule of minority government is don't do anything controversial, um, which unfortunately was simply not an option after 2017. And the question of kind of how you how you square that circle is the is the one that um, you know, is being grappled with throughout the book. Um, and I think one of the things that really came out of a lot of the comments is the extent to which um, the conventions of behaviour end up being strained by the very real difficulties um, of trying to achieve something uh, immensely complex and immensely you know, difficult and, and controversial in all sorts of ways um, in a world where you know, the usual sort of political rules that you would abide by can no longer apply because the clock is ticking, the status quo is not the norm, um, and you, know, you don't necessarily have the may did not have the majority that you would usually ha uh, want to be secure of and able to bank on before embarking on a project like that. Um, and so, you know, these questions about, you know, stretching um, uh, the civil convention, uh, questions about, you know, the rule of law, um, about, you know, uh, what fundamentally ended up as a case of disagreement being treated as democratically illegitimate, as Robert says, are all sort of um, responses to this extraordinary situation. And I think one of the things that we try to pick up a little bit um, in the conclusion of the book is that, you know, this raises a fundamental challenge because, Brexit was a highly unusual event, but it's not impossible to imagine some of those same tensions surfacing in the future over other issues. And the question then is you know, whether it is possible and how we come up with more healthy solutions to them and more healthy approaches to them in the future. Yes, very interesting. And just building on that, um, there are a couple of questions that I'd like to put to all of you, really, but perhaps starting with David, Joanna and Robert before going back to Meg and Lisa. So the message that I think is coming across from all of you is that things went badly wrong in this process. And you were saying that independently of, of any judgment that you might make on Brexit itself. So uh, you've all talked about the, the difficulties faced by the political system and the long-term harms caused to the political system, the parliament to rule of law and so on um, through this process. Um, and so I guess my first question is, why did, why, did, why did things go wrong? Um, I was very struck when I was reading the book that the book is quite harsh on Theresa May, quite negative about Theresa May. And you know, Theresa May these days gets quite a good press in many ways, but looking through this process, it looks like she seems to have made a number of mistakes. But of course, Robert also has pointed out very clearly some of the contextual constraints that she was facing, and those are very much expressed in the book as well. Um, so my first question really is, what, what, why did things go wrong? To what extent was there a problem with what Theresa May was choosing to do? To what extent were the problems more structural? And then second, and very closely related to that, um, some of the problems seem particularly to arise, at least on the book's narrative, from how the government chose to respond in the immediate wake of the referendum in 2016. And Meg has talked already about the way in which Theresa May sought to close down debate, took rather a tribal approach rather than opening up in a way that might have helped uh, uh, avoid the sort of polarization that we saw in recent years. So um, second question is what should, the, the, what should have been done at that point? And would it have been possible for Theresa May to do those things, given her position, David. Yeah, I, 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 I'm one who who sort of would argue that 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 this has to be put in the context uh, that we're in, and and to some extent, um, let me 
try to defend Theresa May, although I think there were missteps, particularly in the first year in which she was in office. Um, but uh, to deliver a Brexit that was acceptable to those who had voted for Brexit, I think you had to you had to end freedom of movement. Not to say that was in our national interests. It wasn't, uh, in my view, but we'd voted the way that we had voted. Uh, and uh, I think any Brexit that was going to sort of survive and, and withstand scrutiny from those who supported Brexit had to deliver the end of freedom of movement. What became very clear with that is that that also involved leaving the single market as a whole. And uh, I think, you know, that was, that was you know, Theresa's view. I think that was probably right. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's, it, I wish that wasn't the case, but I think that was probably right. And that immediately put us on a sort of particular trajectory. I think it also has to be, you know, the context of the Conservative Party that became, and then increasingly became, uh, very, very Brexity uh, and started to define itself by that. Um, the, the, the sort of balance of voters shifted, the balance of the party membership shifted, and um, you know, the Tory supporting press more or less sort of shifted and Brexit became incredibly uh, the sort of purist view of Brexit. Uh, and you know, the difficulty for whoever was leaving, leading the Conservative Party was you, you could only hold that Conservative Party coalition together by moving in a sort of particular direction, it, it really did curtail a lot of the flexibility. But I think there is also that that sort of wider point. And I know you can point to Brexiteers who in the days after 2016, even during the campaign, who were sort of saying, oh, we can have a soft Brexit. And, you know, Boris Johnson actually was pretty emollient immediately after uh, the referendum results. But I think when it came down to it and, you know, Nigel Farage would pop up and say, yeah, but you, you know, we haven't got power to do this and we haven't got power to do that. You, you know, this is a sellout. That, that dynamic was always going to be there. And I think if Theresa had tried a, 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 a much softer Brexit approach from the outset, uh, however much that would have been a better economic outcome for the country, I, I don't think that would have held together because in the end, I don't think that would have satisfied um, uh, those people who voted Brexit. And so you're saying that it wouldn't have held together the people who voted Brexit rather than just that it wouldn't have held together the Conservative Party, because one of the points that the book makes is that perhaps there was too much emphasis on trying to hold together the Conservative Party and there could have been more of a focus on cross-party operation. I think both. And look, there were times, and I you know come back to those cabinet conversations and there were things that were said around cabinet that I think will be embarrassing when the minutes come out uh, about you know why we can't do this because it's going to be terrible for you particularly remember the conversation about whether we had the uh, European parliamentary elections in 2019 yeah some of it was always going to be terrible for the Conservative Party there was of course there was there was there was an element uh, of that but I think there was a more sort of you know fundamental point that a lot of people who who, who, who voted Brexit would, would have been dissatisfied with an outcome that kept us in the single market and kept freedom of movement. But of course, you can't divide that from the politics. You know, what would those people have done if they'd been Conservative voters? They'd have gone and been, become UKIP voters. Uh, um, but, but, but there is still a, a point here. You know, would, would, it, would anybody have been satisfied? I mean, in the end, you know, nobody was ever going to be satisfied by the, 
by by what we what, the, the the final state of Brexit. But but you can see why Theresa May didn't want to walk you know straight into uh, that row, uh, and you know and, and and how that wasn't going to be a sustainable position. Um, mm. uh, so so in that in that sense, you know, I'm not saying she was flawless. But but you know, structurally, she was an incredibly difficult position from day one. Yeah, and Joanna, I guess there's a particular version of this question that relates to the role of those in opposition in Parliament and whether it would have been possible for you collectively to do anything differently to achieve a better outcome. Just to go back to your original question, I think things went really badly wrong um, from the start because nobody was really terribly sure what Brexit meant because of the nature of the campaign, the referendum with no prospectus, which the book discusses, um, no details as to what it meant, huge expectations built up based on lies written on the side of buses, and also a huge insouciance towards major questions like the position of the Irish border and the Good Friday Agreement, which as the book identifies, were not issues that were discussed really at all during the campaign and only emerged uh, later on. So I think that's why things went so dreadfully wrong. Um, in respect of how the government chose to respond, I think Theresa May's you know, there were two courses open to Theresa May. She could have recognised that the victory was very narrow and she could have reached out to the losing side and she could have recognised that two of the constituent parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland and Northern Ireland, had voted to remain and tried to bring the different constituent parts of the UK together, as well as the different parties, to look at a way forward. She didn't do that. Instead, she drew out her red lines. Now, I've no doubt, as David has explored, that that's because she was primarily interested in trying to keep her own party together. But they are the Conservative and Unionist Party. And the failure to reach out and to recognise the particular positions of Scotland and Northern Ireland, I think ultimately history will show it further undermine the union, which the Conservative Party exists to partly exists to support. Um, as to whether the opposition could have done things differently, it was difficult insofar as there were divisions in the Labour Party, not to the same extent as the Conservatives, but there were divisions. Let's just say that Corbyn was a less than enthusiastic Remainer. Um, and, uh, you know, the divisions in the Labour Party were plain for all to see, and, and that made things uh, difficult. Uh, my party was largely united, although two MPs did rebel when we said we were going to support a people's vote. And uh, one MP rebelled on the issue of the whether or not to support an election in uh, October 2019. Um, but despite all our unity, as I've said before, we didn't get very much out of it either. One of the things that was discussed in the trains and buses group was whether or not there might be at some point some kind of government of national unity if the government collapsed. And um, that's not something that I was ever involved in any discussions about within the SNP, but I had my own views about that. And I, I felt it was something that the SNP should only get involved in if we got something out of it, some recognition of the fact that Scotland had voted uh, remain in some recognition of the compromise positions we'd put forward or perhaps devolution 
of the ability to decide when to hold a second independence referendum to the Scottish uh, Parliament. Thank you. Robert? Thanks. Um, I, think the, I think the form of the referendum is the fundamental problem here. And the fact that it, it left to Parliament the really big questions of what was, what was Brexit going to mean, while denying Parliament the democratic legitimacy to make the decisions over that. So that, I think, was the kind of initial poison in the well. Once that had happened, I think constitutionally it would probably have been better if Boris Johnson had become Prime Minister in 2016. Or at any rate, if, if someone who held the mandate from the referendum had led the government. I think a, a big structural problem after 2016 was the sense that there was a democratic authority outside Parliament and outside the executive, which was the verdict of the referendum, against which a prime minister and the government could be held, could be measured and tested. And I think it might have been better, whatever one thinks of the man, from a constitutional point of view, if those who had won the referendum had been tasked with delivering it from the start, rather than later on as a point when they could blame the previous negotiating team for the position in which they, they found themselves. But I, I wonder if it's also worth just mentioning perhaps one area in which Parliament did perform quite well, which is the select committee system. And this does come up in Megan Lisa's book, which is that some really interesting work was done by select committees after 2016, which suggested that it was possible to put leavers and remainers in the same room together and members of different political parties. And out of that come very well-informed, very detailed compromise and consensus positions. The problem, of course, is that none of that had the slightest impact on the actual outcome of Brexit. So I'd be interested to know whether either those who were in Parliament at the time or the authors of the book think that there might have been a way in which the select committee system could have been used more effectively, or some of the lessons of the select committee system could have been transferred across to the Chamber of Parliament, given the difficulties of cross-party working in what most of us see as Parliament. We have lots of fantastic audience questions and we must get to them. Um, but Lisa or Meg, is, is there anything you want really quickly to say before we go to the audience questions? Um, I'll I'll chime in very quickly. Um, I think with a couple of really interesting things that have been raised, um, I think the point that Theresa May you know, felt early on that she had to prove her credentials, um, having you know quietly supported Remain in the campaign, is a really important one, and I think it frames an awful lot of what happens next, um, because one of the the potential missteps that we talk about um, in that first year. Uh, is the sense of drawing red lines too quickly and too firmly. Um, and a number of people, you know, both in our conversations with us, in, in kind of other interviews that have been done on the record, have questioned whether there was quite enough awareness at that point of just how much those red lines would rule out um, or could be argued to rule out later on um, by people who wanted to use them for that purpose. And I think that that's quite an important point, that sort of contextual point of having a prime minister who had not been on the winning side in the referendum and felt that they had to had to prove that they could be trusted um, with the mandate. Um, I think the point about select committees is a really interesting one. And you're right, there was some really valuable stuff that came out of the select committees. Um, and in particular, you know, playing their um, their very frequent role of you know, getting information out of the government, you know, um, hauling ministers up, you know, um, 
test testing their thinking, you know, testing testing scenarios. Um, there's obviously the famous uh, impact assessments, um, which uh, you know the the House of Commons and uh, the exiting the EU committee um, ultimately saw published. But I think also there are some signs that even the select committee system was struggling in this environment. Um, I think many of the select committees managed to function very well, um, but largely because they were only having to look at one aspect of Brexit. And it's far easier to reach agreement on one aspect of Brexit than on the whole thing. When we look at the exiting the EU committee, which had this task of you know, trying to take an enormous kind of cross-cutting view, actually that was a committee that saw real division um, and you know, far more division than is usual for a select committee. So there are there are certainly lessons that the House might try to learn, but I think that that does go both ways and the select committee system was perhaps more on strain and performed despite that strain than it might first appear. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, let's go straight to questions unless Megan's very upset by that. Uh, so Tom has magically appeared on our screen and Tom, what questions do you have for us? Okay, so I've got um, a group of three questions initially, which are all broadly about uh, the sort of longer term constitutional implications of the things we've been discussing. So first, is a question from Jill Rutter, who uh, reflects on the fact that Robert was discussing the consequences that the referendum had uh, for Parliament and asks what that means for future referenda. Um, Gavin Phillipson has then asked if the panellists could identify what they think are constitutional changes that have come about as a result of the parliamentary battles over Brexit. Uh, Gavin himself highlights the replacement of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and the Supreme Court limiting the power of prorogation, but asks what other changes we can attribute to that period. And then third and lastly in this group, Ian McLean asks a question which he suggests is possibly mostly for Joanna Cherry. And he asks, how dangerous does the panel think is the combination of muscular unionism, unionism excuse me, by the UK government negating the Sewell Convention and the apparently more deferential UK Supreme Court under Lord Reid? Fantastic. Three great questions from three great constitutional experts. Um, Robert, shall we go to you first? And uh, I should say, we, we have rather limited time. So each of you, I suggest, pick one question and focus just on that and try to be brief. Okay, so on the question of how we use referendums, I think this is one of the great political questions of our day. I think we have to accept that the referendum is now a permanent part of our constitutional architecture. Um, whether or not we, we welcome that, I think that is simply a fact. And so we have to find a way to make sure that they work with the grain of our parliamentary institutions, rather than as a kind of bomb that blows them apart. Um, and that means thinking, firstly, about when do we use them? How do we make sure they're not simply used to resolve a, a problem inside a party, or that they're not simply a test of strength? And we're seeing that you know, in relation to Scotland at the moment. There is no consensus as to when it is reasonable to hold a referendum and when it is not. And that's a big challenge. And then secondly, there are plenty of parliamentary systems that use referendums that don't have the kind of destructive consequences that we saw over recent years. Um, and we've got to try and learn from those examples. I think it's partly about referendums generally work better when you have a detailed proposal when they come at the end of the legislative process rather than at the start, when you can say, this is what Brexit is going to look like, or this is what the abortion referendum constitutional amendment in Ireland is going to look like. Do you want that or not? Um, so I think placing them at the end of the process rather than at the start 
uh, would be a considerable help. But also thinking about how we use things like citizens assemblies also as part of the kind of constitutional architecture within which referendums happen that help us to clarify questions or to clarify um, the, the points that are at issue. These thoughts are music to your chair's ears. Um, Joanna, do you want to take Ian McLean's question? Yes, thanks. Um, with pleasure. And again, apologies for putting my camera off as I'm trapped in an unusual location with poor Wi-Fi. Um, yes, uh, how difficult, how much of a danger is the combination of muscular unionism and a deferential Supreme Court under Lord Reed? Um, well, I think, I mean, I'll be honest, I think the UK Supreme Court is more deferential under Lord Reed, and I know that's a view that's widely held uh, from people's polls apart on the sort of legal political spectrum, if you like, both Jonathan Sumption and Conor Geerty would agree with me about that. But I don't think the Supreme Court has ever really been terribly interested in the devolved settlement. If you remember under Lord Newberger in the first Miller case, that was when we heard that the Sewell Convention was a constitutional convention that basically couldn't be, didn't have any uh, legal force. And I think the Supreme Court to date under all presidencies have taken really quite a narrow view of the changes that devolution, in my view, has made to the United Kingdom constitution. Uh, but I do think the combination of a more deferential UK Supreme Court under Lord Reid, more deferential in the sense that, for example, <clears throat> in the decision on whether or not the Scottish Parliament had the competence to hold a second independence referendum, I find that a remarkably conservative decision with a small c, with a very narrow view of the British constitution and a very old fashioned view about things like parliamentary sovereignty. Um, so I do think there is a danger there because uh, if unionism continues to be muscular and if um, the perception in Scotland is that there's really no way to defend the devolved settlement through the courts, uh, then clearly support for independence will grow. That's a good thing in my book. And uh, obviously, it's no secret that the SNP is in, to quote our president, a bit of a mess at the moment. But it's very important to understand that even if the SNP is in, in a mess, the country is still split down the middle on the issue of the constitution. And uh, I think if the SNP stops being in a mess and under a new leader starts to answer some of the big questions that stop some of my more no voting, but indie curious constituents from espousing independence, big questions on the economy, cross-border trade in the EU, then I think support for independence in Scotland will rise to above the 60% mark when it come, and will come to a point when pressure for a, a further vote is um, irresistible. So um, I do think muscular unionism and the combination with combined with the deferential UK Supreme Court is ultimately a problem not for Scottish independence, but a problem for the union. You're on mute, Alan. So sorry, David. Um, I want to take Gavin's question on what constitutional changes have happened arising from Brexit. Oh, well, I don't think there've been a, a huge uh, number so far. I mean, the, the um, 
uh, fixed term parliament act as 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 he has mentioned uh, has gone that's not a huge surprise given that the kind of the winners of this process have been in power since so they weren't necessarily likely to be uh, making lots of changes i i do wonder whether we haven't really talked a great deal about this but there was a degree in which uh, you know the whole brexit debate did reveal a realignment of british politics and the difficulties of the two party system um forgive me uh, Joanna, but you know, within England and Wales, largely a two-party system, um, really struggled to cope uh, with that. Uh, and whether, as a long-term consequence, uh, the debate about proportional representation may may take off, but that's that's over a really long period of time. But that may, I think, be an indirect consequence of the realignment. But I think that's you know, Brexit was much as a symptom as a, as, as a cause. And if I could just say very briefly in terms of future referendums, I completely agree with Robert's point that it should come at the end of the process, not at the beginning. And the most obvious sort of application for that is, in fact, if we get to the point, as jo- Joanna wants, and I certainly don't want, that there is uh, you know, a movement towards a, a, um, a Scotland leaving the United Kingdom, um, it would seem to me that uh, you know, a referendum on that in Scotland should only happen after the terms of uh, that separation has been hammered out uh, between the UK government and the Scottish government, and only then should that uh, be put to the Scottish people. And as I should say, I, I fear we're not going to get to another round of questions. So uh, feel free to expand on uh, several of the questions as you wish. <laughs> Dear. And just at the time when I was about to say, I think they've all been answered. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, well, I, there are two things that occur to me to say in response to these points, um, one of which really has been pretty well covered in terms of how we do, how we do referendums differently. Um, where I agree very much with what um, with what Robert and David have said, um, but I think it allows me maybe to loop back to the point about Theresa May, where I was the person who didn't come in on that round, and you know reflect on whether we're unfair on Theresa May for not handling things better. One of the difficult bits, I think, of what Theresa May was handed, and there was a lot. <laughs> um, was this lack of preparation, not just in terms of what Brexit might look like, but actually what the process was for the next steps. You know, so she had to come in very quickly, unexpectedly. The leadership contest actually ended more quickly than expected because of Andrea Leadsom kind of imploding and it being handed to Theresa May without a membership ballot. And she had to decide instantly what the process should be. And if there'd even been reflection on process, let alone content, if we'd even thought, well, how are we going to involve the public in making the decision at the next stage? How are we going to involve parliament? Should there be something like a sort of super select committee, which will maybe take evidence from you know, different sectors of the economy and the population? She had to step in and I think because of the, the, the some of the things that have already been said about her relative defensiveness on the Brexit issue um, you know her words Brexit means Brexit no deal is better than a bad deal all of those things just drew the lines harder and from that point it was very difficult to see how agreement could be reached so she made mistakes but she was in a difficult position and I think part of that is about not doing the referendum well enough um, in the first place, and her not having a civil service briefing on what the next step should be. On Gavin's point, um, I think it's interesting to reflect on what hasn't happened. Um, so the famous page 48 in the Conservative Party manifesto that talked about rebalancing between government, parliament and the courts. 
we haven't actually seen that. Um, that was very much a, a reaction against Brexit by effectively the winners uh, who felt that Parliament and the courts had been getting in the way. And partly perhaps because of COVID, thankfully, we haven't gone down where that path might have taken us towards a, an institutional weakening of one or both of those institutions. I think we have seen some changes which are rather unhealthy ones, which are more so at the very much softer end of the constitution, particularly in the running of political parties and parliament. So I think parties have become sort of more brittle and more defensive, particularly the governing party. The idea now that you might repeat the exercise of throwing people out for voting against the whip only once, when ironically Corbyn had voted 400 times against Labour when it was in government and went on to become the leader of, of his party. Um, I think that needs to end. And I think that the resistance to scrutiny, which kind of goes alongside that, needs to end. Parliament is a place, as Robert says, which should contain many voices, and that should include many voices inside the governing party, as well as across parties. And to try and squash down deliberation in Parliament and dissent in Parliament so that you can't even speak out or vote against your party a single time, I think is very unhealthy. Um, and we could do to row back from that. Thank you so much. This is a conversation that we could continue for a very long time. There are so many threads that I wish we had the chance to follow up further, but sadly we are out of time. Uh, so many thanks to all of you who asked questions there and sorry that we didn't get to more of them. Before I uh, thank our speakers, let me say just a few things. First of all, there is of course the book that we have been talking about today and anyone who has not yet got their copy of the book, um, please do make sure you do so. If you search for it on the Constitution Unit website, you will have the advantage of finding a discount code uh, so that you can get, uh, uh, is it 30% off? Uh, the, the cover price of the book. So well worth going there. A um, Couple of other things to say. The recording of this seminar will appear on our YouTube channel and our podcast feed in the coming days. So please do subscribe to those or look out for information on Twitter. If you're not already signed up to our events mailing list, then please do so in order to be the first to hear about our forthcoming events. And you can just follow the Get Involved link on the Constitution Unit's website in order to sign up to the mailing list. Our next event is in fact coming very soon. So uh, this event today has been focusing mainly on the constitutional implications of the parliamentary battle over Brexit. Next week, Meg and Lisa will be performing again uh, and taking part in another event focusing on how Brexit has panned out within and perhaps also reshaped the Conservative Party. Um, and that event is co-hosted with the UK in A Change in Europe. I see that Ed has just uh, posted a link to the, uh, the details for that in the chat. Um, the other speakers at that event will be Gavin Barwell, Lord Barwell, Graham Brady, Isabel Hardman, and all of that will be chaired by Anand Menon. So with that, let me thank you all for attending uh, today's seminar. And let me particularly on your behalf, thank all of our excellent speakers for a really thought-provoking and fascinating discussion. Meg Russell, Lisa James, David Gork, Joanna Cherry, and Robert Saunders, thank you very much to all of you. Thank you also to Tom Fleming for fielding the questions, to Ed Rowe for organizing today's event. And I should also have said at the start to Emily Thornton, who put together the video that we saw at the start of uh, the seminar. So thank you to everyone. Good afternoon. And we look forward to seeing you again. <laughs>